in order to set the stage for what we're going to be discussing this morning, it's important that we start really at the beginning, like the beginning, back in Eden, all the way back to the start of the story, the beginning of the book. Adam, as you might know, created by God, was given a garden, a garden to enjoy with the singular exception of the fruit of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis chapter 2, we're told that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you can eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for, and the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, as the story goes, it didn't take long for Adam and his wife Eve to disobey God's commands and reap the consequences therein. Through man's rebellion, the cancer of sin rooted itself in the creation of God. This meant that no longer would anything operate according to its design. Three things immediately resulted, occurred as a result of man's sinful choice. First, humanity was instantly separated from God. As a swift consequence, Adam and Eve hid themselves from God in the garden before God then ultimately expelled them from Eden. Because human rebellion demanded God's righteous wrath. We're told that in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Man had to be separated from the holy presence of God. And often we we will repeat a statement like that, not really fully understanding why was it that sinful man had to be separated from a righteous God? And the answer is very simple. To enter God's presence in a sinful state would incur his wrath. To enter God's presence in such a state meant certain death. It's why man was separated. In a sense, it was an act of God's grace. Secondly, all of creation as a result of man's sin ceased operating as it was originally designed. Not only would creation rebel against the dominion of man charged with her care and stewardship, But as a result of his fallen state, man himself was irrevocably broken. We see this according to Genesis 3 verse 7. Immediately upon eating the forbidden fruit, something happened inside of man. We're told that the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Understand, while their existence up until this point had always been God-centric and others-focused, Sin resulted immediately in a self-awareness. Finally, humanity, because of sin, would be in perpetual conflict with one another. Because within every person, self is stirred to life on the account of sin, man's primary focus naturally centers not on others and not on God, but instead on me, myself, and I. We are very self-centered. You judge immediately any photo, not on how well the photo was taken, but on what you look like. Any group photo, you immediately look for whom? For you. And you judge the photo based on what you look like. Everybody might look 
awesome. But if you got a crooked smile, garbage, delete it. It's not going on your Facebook page because you look ridiculous. Like we're selfish, we're self-centered. Sin stirred this self-awareness. All of humanity has this one common trait. Doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. Doesn't matter where you were born. Doesn't matter how you grew up. Doesn't matter what your family looked like. Doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter. We all have one common trait. One thing we all share, the love of self. Like it's why babies are naturally the most self-centered creatures ever. Like you don't have to teach a baby to be self-centered. I mean, a baby comes out and immediately starts screaming at everyone. And what does it want? Like it wants to be fed. It wants to be cleaned. It wants to be cleaned again because it just, you know, was holding back a little. When it wants, it just cries. And never once does a baby ever turn to mom and say, I just really want to thank you for everything you've been doing for me recently. You know, tonight, tonight, I'm going to be others focused. I'm just going to sleep all night. Okay, it just, it doesn't happen. Like if, if you're unaware, I've got two kids you can babysit and, and that point will be driven home. We're selfish. But consider that in less than a chapter and a half, following the introduction of sin to the human condition, what do we see? I mean, from like middle of Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, we're not talking about a whole lot of time. What happens? We see blame instead of personal responsibility. Like God calls Adam out on his sin, and what's Adam's immediate, re- immediate response? You're right, God, I totally, totally messed up. It's really on me. No, he immediately shifted blame. <laughs> it's your fault because you gave me her. That's what he says. My life would have been so much better if it wasn't for her. Like, it's unbelievable. I mean, immediately sin is introduced and we don't take personal responsibility for our actions. We shift blame onto others. Not only that, but like you flip to the next chapter, hoping maybe there's some uh, remedy, some work through, some evolutionary development. No, the first two kids, Cain, filled with anger and envy at his brother, he kills him. Like the first family is totally dysfunctional. That should make you feel good about yours. That's what the results of sin are. Because of sin and this awakenedness of self, man has never gotten along with his fellow man. Now, I bring this up, not to give you uh, like the cliff notes of fallenness or genesis, but but I I mention this to illustrate what happens when regeneration occurs in our lives. When we come to Christ, when there's this regeneration, when we become saved, like what is actually happening? And there's two things I want to point to. First, since God's righteous wrath towards your sin has been satisfied in Jesus and his work on the cross. No longer do you have a need to remain separated from God. 
It was God's wrath towards your sin that demanded you were separated. But because God's wrath was satisfied in Jesus, you now have free and open access. You were separated, now you're reconciled. You're free to have a relationship with God, to have communion with God, to boldly enter the throne of grace because of Jesus' work on the cross, regeneration. Secondly, because we're now reconciled with our creator, you as his creation, something begins to happen. Because now you're reconciled to the creator as creation, you can begin to operate as you were designed to operate. Sure, this world might remain in a state of fallenness. And you look around and it's undeniable, it's in a state of disarray. The new life that you've been given in Jesus, it not only frees you from sin, but it fills your life with meaning and purpose. How? Because you have a restored relationship with the designer, with the creator. You can operate as he intended. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. We're told, therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. Creation. A new creation. Old things, old creation is passed away. Behold, all things become new. Amen. Romans 6. Therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism into his death. Speaking of Jesus that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, life, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So what's great about regeneration is that it takes away this sin separation because God's wrath towards your sin was satisfied. So now you can have a relationship with God and then as the byproduct of that, you can operate as the creator intended. And we call this new creation, new life, new man. Finally, because we're right with God and we've been restored by Jesus through his spirit, what happens? We're no longer separated. We can function as we were designed. And finally, we're able to love our fellow man. Like you see the progression of how this works as it pertains to how sin destroyed. Like it's why Paul would say in Galatians 5.14, for all the law is fulfilled or carried into effect in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself because you're right with God. As you've been restored by Jesus through his spirit, you're finally able to love one another. Because of sin's threefold effect, Paul's point, he points to the final result, human interactions as being the ultimate litmus test for whether or not you're saved or you've been regenerated. It's as though Paul's saying this in the flow of his argument in Galatians. You know you're right with God and operating as you were designed to operate. One thing, do you love one another? 
If you love one another and there's love being demonstrated, you mean, it means you're operating as designed, which means you're reconciled with the creator, meaning you're saved, you're regenerated, a new work's happened in your heart. Since God's love for me is the primary driver of his grace towards me, love for God and others is the primary reciprocating result. If you don't have a love for people, I question whether or not you've experienced God's love or his grace. Without God's love, there is no grace. And yet without his grace, there can be no love. God's love for me leads to God's grace being shown towards me, which leads to God's love now being demonstrated through me. It's how this all works. And yet, while Paul has definitely and definitively illustrated the failure of legalism by pointing to these Galatians' lack of love for another. You know, he said, you're biting and devouring one another. And he does this to point that that reality is evidence that they've departed from God's grace. You know, it tends to be the default mode of the legalist when faced with like the brutal reality, you know? So you're the legalist and you've been hit in the face concerning your legalism. It's hard to deny that biting and devouring one another is not really the manifestation of what God intended. And so you're sitting there like, okay, man, I've got a problem. The legalist, the natural tendency is to immediately think what? All right, man, what do we need to do to fix this? It's clear, there's not love in this place. So, so what do we need to do? How can we work through this? Like the immediate result of the legalist, that the reaction is what do I now need to do to fix the problem? The truth, there's nothing that you can do. Like that's not the remedy, that's the problem. Like Paul is gonna kind of answer this hypothetical question in a very interesting way. Look at verse 16. Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, before we unpack the particulars of these verses, it's important I begin by addressing a much larger question as to what Paul is referencing when he brings up the flesh. Like for starters, I think it's safe to say we all know experientially what Paul is referring, what he's referencing when he describes this war that rages within between the flesh and the spirit. If you're regenerated, you, you might not be able to like explain it, but you experience it. Like you know inside of you that there's this tension, that something is happening always, that there's a magnetic pull to do things that I don't even wanna do. This enticement into sin, this internal wrestling. What becomes problematic, it's not that we don't understand it from an experiential way, but the problem when we discuss this internal war between the flesh and the spirit is that we, we have a hard time quantifying 
what two things are actually in conflict? Have you found yourself kind of wrestling and struggling with that? I know something's at war, but I don't know exactly what it is. Like what's battling, what's happening? While on one aspect, we understand what Paul means when he refers to the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the indwelling spirit of God. That, that's cool. Things become hazy, murky, and muddy when you try to nail down and define what Paul means by the flesh. Sadly, the fact that it's hard to nail this down has led many pastors to attempt at defining these things illustratively. I'll give you an example of two guys and two illustrations I heard in my prep. Guys I respect, guys I trust, guys, by the way, I totally disagree with. The way that they frame this battle is something like this on one end. Within every person, there are two dogs against one another. You've got a black dog of the flesh and a white dog of the spirit. And the more you feed that black dog, the more the flesh has power over the white dog. So you need to start feeding that black dog and withholding nourishment from the black dog so that the white dog has power. And it's like, first, there's no dogs inside of me. And secondly, like, the black dog is dead. That's weird. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't help me out at all. I heard it maybe framed like this. Every person is a computer deck. You're a, a computer tower. You know it's an old illustration because nobody has those anymore. And within every computer deck are two different hard drives controlling the operating system. There's the flesh hard drive and there's the spirit hard drive. And you want to be operating always under the spirit hard drive because if you ever default back to the flesh hard drive, you'll get error messages and that's the law. No, it's not. And I'm not a computer either. And if you're referring to things as drives, that's weird because that drive is supposed to be dead. Like, it's weird. Regrettably, even more pastors, if it's not an illustration that leads to confusion, it's like the regurgitating of an unhelpful platitude. Like I've heard the, the flesh described as the fallen nature within or the traitor inside each of us. Like here's the problem with illustrations like these and antidotes and why they lend to more confusion than they do clarity. I'll explain my own difficulties with it. If the old man has been reckoned dead and is no longer alive, then how can something that's dead wage a war with God's spirit with so much veracity? It's a zombie. No, it's not a zombie. There's not a zombie inside of me. I also heard someone try to describe it like that. Since there's this obvious fight, I know it exists. I feel it all the time. This battle between the flesh, whatever that is, and the spirit, there's something happening. There's a conflict. I know it. I feel it. I experience it. But what's fighting? Like who's in the other corner? And who was, and what was crucified with Christ, right? I mean, Paul was crystal clear. In Galatians 2.20, right? When he wrote this, I have been crucified with Christ. Then he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What was crucified? 
Because last time I checked, if you're crucified, like you have a really hard time resisting. Like both hands and feet, like, like you're permanently nailed to a tree. Not a lot of fight happening with someone crucified. You're dead. In order to define the flesh and to provide clarity on this subject, it's helpful you first actually know what makes you, you. Like the Bible presents the fullness of man and woman as being, and this is a fancy word, a trichotomy. Or literally, a triune nature. We're told in Genesis that man, humanity, was created in the image and the likeness of God. And in that sense, man, distinct to the rest of creation, was, was provided with three parts. There are three parts that make up you, okay? Every human being has a physical body, an immaterial soul, and a spirit. Now, just before you think I'm pulling that out of thin air, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Paul writes, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul sets us up in these three ways. Let me define them for you. First, you have the body, which is the physical part of a person that tethers you to the physical world. It's not rocket science. You look at that thing every day. The body, beyond just this physical matter per se, would include things like the mind, your brain, where thoughts and emotions and feelings originate. The body would also include your genetic traits and tendencies, what drives your personality, your habits, your predispositions. Basically, it's the entirety of the physical you, the body. But then you have the soul. And your soul is the non-material essence of your being. The soul, we would say, is the real you. And is therefore the part of you that will continue on following the physical death. Within the soul dwells the conscience and the will, where decisions are made. And you should note that your soul is impressionable. I'd love to take a whole Bible study and discuss that, but I don't have time. Thirdly, you have the body, the soul. You have a spirit, the spirit. This is the spiritual part of a person that provides life to the body and the soul. God formed man from the dust of the earth, right? And what did he do? He breathed life into him. A spirit provided life to the body and the soul. In regards to the soul, the spirit tethers you to God. As it pertains to the body, the spirit provides you life. That means the spirit includes the seed of your desires, your nature, what we would commonly call the heart, like the heart of man. That's your spirit. And note, I want to address this very quickly. While there are passages in scripture that use these two words, soul and spirit, interchangeably, there are just as many passages in the Bible that indicate a clear distinction between the two. A balanced perspective would see the soul and spirit as being two separate 
but distinctly connected components. In the same way that without a spirit, your body's dead, your soul is dependent on the spirit. It provides life. Now, because everyone is born with a fallen nature, like we received life, how? Through the human spirit provided by Adam. We all immediately experience, right at birth, the results of sin in both our mortal bodies, that's the physical effects of sin leading to death, as well as in our souls. This is the eternal death as a result of a separation from God. This is why passages like Ephesians 2.1, Colossians 2.13, describe us in this fallen state filled with the spirit of Adam as being, quote, dead in our trespasses and sin. But I'm still alive. Yes, but you're going to death. That's why I'm not a big fan of birthdays. All a birthday signifies is one year closer to death. Have you ever noticed the really twisted thing that they make you do on your birthday? We put candles with the light of life signifying how old you are and we make you do what? Blow them out. (laughs) Great, I'm one year closer to death. I'm dying. It's the truth. And not only that, my soul's dead in the sense that it's separated from God. When I die, it will be separated for eternity. And yet, what's cool? Upon accepting Jesus as your savior, an amazing supernatural work takes place in our lives. What is described as the old man, the spirit of sin given to you by Adam, it's replaced, isn't it? With a quote, new man the Holy Spirit given to you by Jesus. So when you're saved, when you're regenerated, when you come to Christ, the dead spirit, the spirit of Adam, the spirit of sin, it's removed and the spirit, the component of you that feeds life and desire is replaced with the Holy Spirit, with God's spirit. The spirit of death is replaced with the spirit of life. In a very literal way, when this occurs, because the spirit determines life, what happens? We use a phrase for it, right? You're born again, right? When Nicodemus came to Jesus, what did Jesus say about inheriting the kingdom of life? You need to be born twice. You need to be born of water in the sense that there is an actual physical birth. Then you need to be born of what? Spirit the spirit of God coming into my life, providing me newness of life, not oldness of sin. This is why we also use a phrase to ask Jesus to come into your heart. Ever found that kind of weird? I have, and I'm a pastor. You need to ask Jesus to come into your heart. What does that mean? Like, how does that happen? Like, like we use that phrase because what we're describing in that, 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 that statement is that you're asking Jesus to replace your old sinful nature, my spirit, with what? With his righteous one. 
that we want his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to come into me and to provide newness of life, that I might be born again, that what runs me, controls me, and fe- is the spirit of God and not that old thing. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. Romans 8, 2, the spirit of life in Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. How? The Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, since by man, Adam, came death. By man, note, capitalized, Jesus, also came the resurrection of what was dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Okay, you following me? When this supernatural work of God takes place in your life, two things immediately result. First, your soul, the real you, that had been separated from God since birth because of your sin nature in Adam, is instantly reconciled with the Father through Christ Jesus. Why? Because you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been made alive in Christ, thus you're reconciled back to God. 1 Peter 1 verse 9, this result is described literally as, quote, obtaining the outcome of your faith, what? The salvation of your body, the the salvation of your soul, who you are, you. Secondly, because you now have the spirit of God, a new nature, indwelling the seed of desire, spirit. The very body these desires control begins to naturally behave differently, which is why if you're running around acting carnally, I question what spirit you have. Because if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the body will behave naturally different. We'll get to that next Sunday. And yet, if we're to be honest this morning, we'll concede, right? The fact that this behavioral change driven by God's spirit, ends up encountering a level of resistance from my body. Like understand, though the indwelling spirit of God has changed who you are, how so? Because it's tethered your soul back to God which is why you're righteous and sinless, that you're a son of God, a daughter of God, that you're an heir of the promises of God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You, who you are, you're right. Because your soul is connected back to God because his wrath was satisfied. And you've been filled with his spirit. Not only does the spirit do this, it also has the power to control the body because the spirit resides in the seat of desires. And yet, the literal effects of sin in the body still remain. Like, let's tie it together. The flesh, or what some call self, is actually nothing more than a reference to your unregenerated mortal body, which still remains tainted and corrupted by sin. Unlike the soul and the spirit, as part of this physical, natural world, your body, which also includes your thoughts, your genetic traits, etc., it's still, scripturally speaking, waiting 
expecting a future regeneration and a yet future resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, Also, so is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption, the resurrection. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on, at a future point, incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. This is when we talk about a resurrected body, the full completion of this work of salvation. Historically, Bible scholars have been hesitant to define the flesh as only being the physical body. But this perspective was mainly the result of an incomplete understanding of what all the physical body controls. Like what is the physical man? This Greek word translated flesh, it's sarx, S-A-R-X, which referred to as, quote, the soft substance of the living body, which covers the bones and is permeated with blood. Today, we understand the physical body of man, including the mind and his overarching genetic predispositions additionally covers, your physical body covers your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, your personality, your habits and predispositions, all of which, by the way, are presently experiencing the effects of sin as it's still awaiting regeneration. What this means is that the battle between the flesh and the spirit describes two completely contrary forces under the directive of your will, your soul. On one side, there is my body, my flesh, still corrupted by sin, and one that, by its very constitution, pursues the pleasures of self as its chief ambition. It hasn't been regenerated. On the other side, there is the supernatural, Not the natural, but the supernatural, the Holy Spirit of God in me, which desires to use my body, not as an instrument of sin, but instead as an instrument of righteousness. Like the battle that you experience, it rests in a decision you have to make every day in the will, which will choose to either surrender control of my body to God's Holy Spirit so that I can live consistent with the new nature I've been given in Christ, or to allow the body to function as it naturally wills, corrupted by sin. I'll give you a quick example of this. Anger. Anger is a genetic predisposition. Like people are genetically predisposed to be angrier than others. Like they they can trace that and trigger that. Which means that, let's say you had the predisposition to be angry, like genetically, you fly off the handle. That's what you naturally do when faced with a situation, right? So now you're faced with that situation. As you were before Christ, man, you had no problems flying off. Like you got actually some type of like joy out of that because that's who you are, man. And yet in Christ, immediately something happens. I can, as the will, I can either default to the flesh 
which means I'm going to allow myself to become angry and act accordingly, or because I don't want to do that anymore, I allow the Holy Spirit, the seat of my desire, to say no. That's not you anyway. And not only that, I'll just give you the power to overcome that. So this this battle that happens, what makes this experience different than the one before regeneration is that the body of sin and the spirit of sin acted in concert, didn't it? Like you didn't have a battle before. The old man, the spirit of Adam, the fallen nature, and my body of sin acted in harmony, which explains, by the way, why you're a really good sinner. Like before Christ, you had no problem sinning, did you? You wanted it and you're good at it. Boom and boom. And yet what has happened? When the old man crucified with Christ is replaced with a new man, a new nature, a new spirit, I might still have a tendency to sin, but I don't want to. As a matter of fact, I'm a miserable sinner. Because even when I do, I have no joy in it anymore. I just want to run through a wall. Why am I doing this? I don't even want to do this. It's because you're not surrendering yourself to the Spirit. You see, the resistance occurs following regeneration because my flesh, corrupted by sin, is now under the control of something it doesn't want to be under control of, God's Spirit. My body is no longer free to operate as it naturally would because my desires are no longer driven by the old man, but now by the new. Meaning the flesh, corrupted by sin, is in constant tension with my spirit, the spirit that desires to be righteous. Romans 8, 11 through 13. Let me give you an example of this playing itself out. Paul writes, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you, the soul, live according to the flesh, the body, you're going to die. But if by the spirit, you, the soul, put to death the deeds of the body, you say no you will live. With every decision, your soul, the real you, alive in Christ, right before God, sinless, must choose between the body's natural tendencies to sin, which is to act contrary to who you even are, or to surrender the body to the control of the spirit, the new seat of desire. Every aspect of your life is subject to this battle between the flesh and its natural tendencies and proclivities to sin, and the contrary desire within me of the spirit, which is to live as God would want me to. Look at our text again. Paul begins, walk in the spirit. I hope you understand. I hope that that, that just took on a, a deeper level of understanding and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let me define lust real quick. In the Greek, it's literally the desire 
or the craving, the longing of the flesh. Now, in order to understand the fundamental nature of the battle, first consider this. Few people ask it. What is the lust of the flesh? My flesh. The simple answer to this question is that the desire of the flesh is to self-satisfy. It's a result of this fallen nature given to me. It's the result, it's a consequence, a byproduct of what happened in the garden. It's that when, when we rebel against God, there is an awareness of self and now the desire to satisfy self. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But now pause for just a moment because there's a critical observation that needs to be made before we continue. While it's absolutely true, the solution to sinful behavior, the natural default mode of the flesh is to walk in the spirit and context to the fundamental purpose of Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is not the topic that Paul is addressing. Paul is not writing to carnal Christians. You see, in context to everything he's been discussing as it pertains to the mechanism by which we live a righteous life, the topic at hand, we understand that even after being filled with the indwelling spirit of God, our flesh still seeks what? To be self-satisfied in a way that might be different than overt carnality, which it still has the tendency to do, but one that's just sinful and just as destructive, sure, it's important every believer understand the remedy to overcoming the natural proclivities of your sinful flesh, whether it be the flaws in your personality or the tendencies of your biology, is to resist these urges, urges by walking in the Spirit. Make that choice. Walk in the Spirit. You're filling with anger? Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. That's the remedy to carnal living is to walk in the Spirit, knowing that I am more than flesh and blood. I've been made a righteous son and heir with Christ. And yet, I'm going to point this out in context. The greater urge of our sinful flesh as believers and the one in which our battle truly lies is the flesh's attempt to manufacture a righteous life apart from the spirit using the law. That's the whole context of what Paul is addressing here. For the believer, it is a truth that our flesh will more often than not gravitate, it, gravitate towards religiosity than it will carnality. The flesh will seek to self-satisfy in a different way, right? I'm no longer satisfied by sin. Like I want, my desire is to please God, right? So how does the flesh now seek to self-satisfy? By trying to get you to please God in a way that isn't driven by the spirit, but instead by the flesh, Instead of brazen rebellion against God, the flesh will try to play an active role in righteousness. It will try to earn God's favor, display its worthiness, and in the end, take pride in what? Self-achievement, which now you're just, you're more like Satan than anything else. It's why J. Oswald Sanders wrote, self cannot dethrone self, or it will wear the victor's crown. And yet, not only will the flesh fail to yield the results it craves, a life that pleases God, but it will also rob you of the very mechanism godly living demands, which is what? The spirit. It's why Paul continues by saying, look at it, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, literally. 
Since the flesh is continually craving what only the spirit can provide. That's what he means there. The flesh actively wars against the spirit. It says, I want to do what you do. I want to do what you promise. This word against, it means to suppress the influence of or to hold down. So the flesh lusts against what only the spirit can provide. It fights the spirit. It wants to achieve right before God that only the spirit can provide. But the flip side to it is that the spirit says, oh, that's what you want to do? Okay, I will refuse to allow you to do it. That's what Paul's saying. Like the great irony is that while the flesh boxes out the spirit, the spirit will never allow the flesh to find success. That's why Paul says, look at it again. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. You see, the flesh uses the law to manufacture a result that can only be yielded by the spirit. And yet, not only does the flesh fail because the law is powerless. That's why he writes, you don't do the things you wish. The attempt itself suppresses the only power that can actually bring success. What does the lust of the flesh actually produce in my life? What he means by fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does it want? What does it fulfill? What does it accomplish? The flesh only produces a pseudo moralism that God rejects and one that the spirit actively resists so that it only leads to spiritual frustration and failure. Paul's point is that in Galatia, legalism fed their flesh. It robbed them of spiritual power, the power of God's spirit, and it had failed to yield righteous living, the thing they wanted, which was evidenced by their lack of love for one another. So what's the remedy? How were these Galatians going to be able to reject the flesh and break free of legalism? How were they going to, as Paul closes the last chapter, cast away the bondwoman and her child so that the work of God could be accomplished in their lives through the spirit of God? The answer, if the flesh and the spirit are in contrary to one another and therefore cannot work in concert with one another, the solution, just walk in the spirit, man. Just walk in the spirit. Like in a profound sense, the only way that self will advocate the throne in your life is for the will to dethrone the flesh. How? By enthroning the spirit. Because they're contrary. If the spirit's there, the flesh can't be there. If the flesh is there, well, the spirit won't be, but he also won't allow the flesh to be successful. You choose. This word walk, it literally means to live. It was a common way of describing the way in which someone lived out their life. Paul, his exhortation here, note it's in the present active. It's the tense. Meaning what Paul is instructing these Galatians is this. Choose to walk in the spirit. Make a choice. Reject legalism. Walk in the spirit. Reject carnality. Walk in the spirit. Walk in the spirit. Get your eyes off of everything else and choose to walk in the spirit. And then decide to keep walking, to continue to walk. Understand, Paul is not describing a one-time remedy, but rather a new way of living. 
Like this morning, whether it be a battle between the flesh and its natural default to act out in a sinful way that you're embarrassed about, or its more sneaky attempt at self-pleasing through religious moralism, so I can take pride in self. I want you to know, I want you to be encouraged with a very simple yet profound observation. One of the greatest preachers who ever lived made, Charles Spurgeon, he said concerning this battle between the flesh and the spirit, how frustrating it can be. He said, dead men don't wrestle. Understand, the very nature of the struggle is evidence of some incredible reality that you're alive because you've been filled with the spirit of God. That there is a wrestling. So choose to walk in the spirit. Like that flesh, your flesh, that's not you, friend. You, the real you. Like you're no better fit for heaven than you are right now. That God's love doesn't change based upon what you do or don't do. That you are right with him because you've been filled with his spirit. He's given you everything you need for godly living. The solution. If you don't want to fulfill the lust of the flesh this morning or tomorrow or the week after, choose, make a choice to walk in God's spirit. So Father, Lord, we just want to leave